Good afternoon. Welcome to the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm the publisher and founder of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and I'm happy you could join us here this Thursday. Today is a topic that's uh, near and dear to me um, because I've, I've been involved in uh, the environmental consulting side of, uh, of this topic. Uh, but our topic for today is life after mold. And, uh, and is there actually life after mold? Uh, to that to that end, uh, we're really lucky to have our, our guest with us, uh, Dr. Lauren Tessier. Uh, she's a naturopathic physician. She's licensed in the state of Vermont. Um, she created um, a, a practice uh Life After Mold, and it's the East Coast only uh, CIRS certified nat naturopathic uh, practice. And we'll have to ask her what CIRS is um, because I actually don't know. And she's currently also the president of the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. So uh, that's great. So uh, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Lauren. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Uh, great, great. Uh, th thanks for joining us today. Um, we've, we've got just a just a, a bevy of questions, but the first one. So uh, that acronym, what does that mean? Oh my goodness. Um, so uh, CIRS is also known as SIRS. Some people pronounce it SIRS. It's the the uh, jury's still out on the pronunciation sometimes, depending on regional dialects. Um, but it's one of the few types of mold illness. It's one of the few types that mold can interact uh, with the body. And so um, CIRS stands for chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And it's when um, there's an incendiary event, an incendiary something that gets the fire of inflammation going. And then the fire continues long after that starting event has has diminished or left or, or been gone. So um, that is one of the type of mold illness. And it's um, only in a handful of my clients as I've come to experience over the years, um, a little less prevalent than I originally potentially thought it would have been. Okay, well, that, that answered it for me. And I've, I've heard the term before. I wasn't familiar with the acronym. It, t it totally threw me off. Um, and the other thing I think we need to define uh, is a, a naturopathic uh, physician. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. That's another new term for me. I've got, I've got to be honest. I'm learning a lot today already. Yeah, so a naturopathic physician is a physician that's gone through naturopathic medical school. So it is a uh, doctoral degree. Um, another additional, uh, it's a postgrad, so usually about um, four to five years, depending. Um, and we leave school with the ability to practice as a primary care physician or eventually, you know, go into a specialty field. We are licensed in different states around the country. Unfortunately, we don't have federal recognition. This is something that we really push for. And because of the lack of federal recognition, there are people who um, call themselves naturopaths that haven't actually gone to a accredited doctoral program. So there's a little bit of a mishmash out there of people who say they're naturopaths and might cause a lot of harm in some folks versus someone who's been trained as a physician and who is licensed as uh, the state that they're in, which is why, of course, I say that I'm I'm licensed by Vermont, so it's clear to people that I'm actually a, a practicing physician here. Yeah, that's somewhat alarming, actually. That you know the, that that moniker you know is is misused because you know from from the standpoint of you know the clientele, right, the consumers, uh, is it clear to them? I mean, do they know the difference? 
No, and it's not clear to them at all. Um, Well, for some, I should take that (laughs) back. For some people, it's it's very clear for them. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's hard because I think our profession has really fought to um, be properly represented. Like in the state of Vermont, I have full prescriptive authority. Um, I have the same prescriptive authority as an MD, you know, from everything from uh, chemotherapeutic drugs to um, you know, scheduled medications, things like that. Uh, how much do I use them? Not often because I tend to like more of my, you know, natural and holistic tools that actually focus on biochemistry from nutrients, um, from a nutrient perspective. But, um, you know, when you need a medication, uh, there's, there's a rhyme and reason for everything, you know, so I definitely don't throw the baby out with the bathwater on that front. So, so you, uh, yeah. Uh, in our pre-show, we discussed this a little bit. So I've, I've been involved as a consultant in the industry, and uh, actually mold was one of the things I was early involved with in the early 90s. Um, and, and, you know, I got to watch some of the morph of the industry over that period of time. We were doing it before, I think, the term mold remediation existed. And it was it was always challenging to me, you know, to uh, people that would, you know, say, you know, say they had issues and then they'd go to see their physician and they would get, you know, pretty much either sidestepped or dismissed by, by their, their uh, family practitioner or whoever they were seeing. And, and is that still happening? I mean, are, are you seeing that? Oh yeah, to an extent. And uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I put um, life after mold in the title of my practice. I'm sorry, my camera is a little bit wiggly. I'm so sorry today, guys. This is that's, that's okay. poor production value. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it's interesting that you even mentioned production value because you're like one of the first guests that actually realizes that. So that's that's I, I'm, in, in that and of itself, <laughs> oh, totally redeemed you. Oh, good. Okay. Well, if my camera falls over, that's that's my out then. At least you um, will, probably won't have a cat walk across the table. We've had that live in the show. Well, you know, I'm not home today, so let me. <laughs> it would be a possibility if I were home today. Um, so, uh, what were we just mentioning? I want to hop back to that. Oh, oh as far as making. as far as um, you know, the conventional medical practitioners, you know, conventional doctors, family practice, general practitioners, you know, that somebody you know, that believed that maybe they had a mold exposure and had issues, they, you know, would go to see, you know, their, their primary care physician. Right. And, but traditionally from what I've seen is usually those, those individuals, those professionals are not necessarily versed in diagnosing or even dealing with these issues. And they, they tend to either dismiss it or just mishandle it. Is that still the case? Right. It is still the case. And that's actually one of the reasons why I put mold in the name of my practice is because even as a primary care physician at the time when I first was cutting my teeth um, and getting set up, it was really hard to try to convince people that mold could be an issue in their home. Because even for some people, it was like mold is a four letter word. Mold means I'm dirty, which it doesn't. You know, I want to be really clear about that. Um, But, you know, it's it's hard because a lot of physicians, it's not that they don't believe people. There's a lot of Western medical doctors out there that go, I don't know. And I think I don't know is better than no, that's not possible. And I think as time has marched on, there's more doctors who kind of um, lean a little bit more to that. I don't know what it could be. And I think that that actually leaves a door open instead of medically gaslighting people and telling them that like, there's nothing here. It's all in your head um, because you don't have an allergy here on paper. Um, here's a um, antidepressive medication and let's see if that does anything. So yeah, it, it definitely still happens. Well, I mean, you mentioned allergy too, that just, because that's only maybe one potential response, right? To mold exposure. Uh, but that's right. when everybody's 
I think in the medical community, you know, the, the IG responses and the whole, you know, the allergy uh, practice focus, you know, the, I, I think that's the first thing, right, that they go to is, are, well, you're, are you allergic to mold or not? People always, client, potential clients will come up and say that, well, you know, I, we don't have a mold allergy. Well, okay, that's great. <laughs> what does Thanks. that mean? I'm so sorry. This is never an issue. I apologize. This is driving me nuts. Um, so with allergies, um, there are four different ways that mold can interact with the body. Um, and I usually tell people it's like uh, four overlapping circles. If people remember back to like Venn diagrams, I don't know if nice. that all the people. So we're having one, two, three, four. And so, um, Somewhere in there, they all overlap and intersect, right? Okay. So there's mold allergy, which is widely um, uh, followed by the uh, Western medical um, tradition. And the mold allergy is mediated by something called IgE. Um, and usually they do this by like skin prick testing. Sometimes they will do um, blood testing for it. Um, and the problem with that is there's lots of different ways that mold can react through kind of an allergic picture without necessarily having an allergy. So the, this is you so are fighting your camera. That's, I'm that, fighting that, my camera. That, that's this okay. You know, take a second and get it, get it locked in because I, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. Gosh. You know, we're all, we're all friends here. It's all good. Sorry, guys. This is you so know, disappointing. Trust me, I, you could be in a studio with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and have stuff malfunction. You'll see how disappointing that is. is my whole retirement is tied up in hardware here uh, when it doesn't function properly. You're good. good. <laughs> Everyone, fingers crossed for me, please. We got, we got, well, you can just follow the camera. It's kind of like a moving shot. So you just kind of move <laughs> along with it, you know, you know, wherever it wanders to, you just, you'll be down on your desk pretty soon. Right. Clearly, humor is important to me for everyone. Who's it's clearly important to me too. So right. you fit in very well here. So with allergy, right? So usually the whole typical allergy, they'll either do like a blood test or they'll do a skin prick. The problem is there's only a handful of, um, uh, lab specimens that they can compare to. So if you do a mold allergy panel, they might not be testing for the substrain of cladosporium that you're exposed to, and therefore you won't light up as positive. There's also the possibility of maybe you have an antibody deficiency and your body doesn't make those antibodies um, as much. And then we've also seen situations um, in some of the medical literature where kiddos who have been exposed, I believe it was Aspergillus niger in a school setting, they developed all these allergies to stuff their body had never seen before, like horse dander and all this, but then their IgE for Aspergillus fumigatus like uh, didn't light up. So um, the allergy just makes a really small subsection of what has actually happened for people. And if we depend on allergy, we're missing everything. And that's just one picture. So if we just think it's allergy, then we miss kind of infection colonization where the mold is actually actually in the body. Um, we miss the toxic element, which is one of the other circles where the mycotoxins that are produced by certain molds can have a toxic effect on your body. We miss that if we just focus on allergy. And then the last thing we miss can be SIRS, which is that inflammation that was started by having that exposure to that mycotoxin. So yeah, when people go really myo um, myopic and focus on allergies, you miss a whole thing. But 
one of the things to remember is if you're ever, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, <laughs> but you know, the, the way to really um, demonstrate your case is to speak the language of the insurance companies and the lawyers. And that language happens to be what traditional allopathic medicine uses. And that language is either allergy or infection. And so sometimes, even though allergy might not be the, the most important thing in a case for me, more the toxic picture is, sometimes it's beneficial to demonstrate that positive allergic reaction for people. And, and so, I mean, that seems like it could be a potential quandary though, because um, I'm assuming that many, many patients that you see um, would be affected in more than one of those four uh, areas. You, you know, it could be a combination, right? Yeah, hence why all the circles overlap, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's yeah. So that's and you can see where a lot of people are missing that because I, I think most of the people that are watching the show on the consulting side, I've heard that numerous times. You know, their clients will typically start talking discussing allergy, and then mycotoxins get brought up in some way, shape, or form because of all the media publicity for toxic mold. You know, so but you know infections, and I got to say, I I. I you mentioned in the pre-show that there seems to be a higher incidence of fungal infection than you originally thought existed. Mm-hmm. That, to me, that's really that's really astonishing because I've always been under the belief that only people that are uh, immune, uh, immune compromised mm-hmm. or, you know, it's a certain subset of people, people are agricultural workers, maybe, you know, a certain subset. But that's yeah. about the only people that I believed were subject to fungal infection. And that's yeah. not the case, right? If you dig around in um, PubMed, um, you can start to see that there's a lot more people who are immune competent, who have a fully functioning immune system, who are developing um, infections uh, with, you know, without blinking an eye. And the unfortunate part is some of these are some of the really um, problematic infections that are already drug resistant, like the candida, uh, what is it, glabra? Um, That was, you know, they found it a couple of years ago, remember, like behind switch plates and an ICU that was supposed to be completely sterile and they didn't really have any recourse for it. So, um, yeah. And the hard part is not only are people developing these infections, but we've really backed ourselves into a corner with regards to resistance because there's the overuse, A, of the drugs in the medical setting. And then there's the overuse in the agricultural and farm setting. We put... Um, hundreds of thousands of tons of azole class of um, antifungals on our food every year. And then to boot, all of our housing construction, the the backbone of like pressure treated lumber is a copper azole, you know? So you potentially have, you know, a a mold resistance uh, playground developing in your walls ready to go. And what with the study that what came out in 2016 where they saw that gypsum board because of the way it's um, can, uh, made, constructed, created, um, that paper stays wet. And when that paper sure. stays wet, those spores and the ambient air land on it. So what they did was they did a study where they cut a low circle gypsum out. They put it in um, a sterile Petri dish with sterile water and it grew, it grew uh, ketomium, it grew stacky. And I can't remember the other one, but, but like some of the bigger heavy, heavy swingers when it comes to mycotoxin producers. It, it makes total sense though when you think about it, because the paper production, right, is, is it's not from dimensional lumber or something. It's from, you know, 
chopped up wood that's you know probably some of it's already decomposing <laughs> you know and that, that's with any of the wood manufactured products by the way you mentioned it in gypsum board we've done studies with uh our you know in-house studies uh, on individual projects with uh oriented strand board osb and, and we were able to find you know in core samples there's active mold growing inside when you wet the sample inside the material so wow. it's that's not that's not environmentally that didn't happen in in the environment where the product was installed that happened in manufacture yeah and i i would love your opinion on this because i have a lot of people who come to me and they say well what do i do now now that i'm remediating and building a healthy home to you know try to prevent this from further on i tell people i'm like well i'm not an iep and i, I i'm not a building scientist you know and so um, apparently not even green board is the thing. I've heard something about the like DuPont yellow board, right? <laughs> and like steel I-beams and all these types yeah, of things. I, I, so I'll, th I'll throw my two cents. First of all, if, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. if you're above grade, well, the big thing is moisture control, right? right so you right. want products that are that are moisture impervious or at least moisture re you know resistant and able to, able to not become a uh, food playground. So so conventional gypsum board, I, I love the term green board too, because I, I don't have one queued up here, but I, classic thing we were on a, a project years back where it was big new construction big assisted living community all green board on the partition walls the party walls so mm -hmm. uh two inches of that for fire breaks between the apartments and but they put that in before the roof is on because they have to drop the panels down so this green board was covered with mold growth all over it, and then they just finished construction with it bare you know entombed in the walls point being though is they're saying well it's green board it's resistant it's like no it's paper <laughs> It's like it's right. not resistant. So right. so as far as like if you're going to be in moisture environments, you should be using cementaceous type uh, wall boards like hardy mm -hmm. board, things like that, where it's it's actually masonry board. Uh, right. That's because it's not organic. Um, if you if you really have to use a gypsum product then things like uh, Georgia Pacific Dense Armor Plus, I've had great success yes. with that over the yep. years because, again, yep. it's fiberglass and gypsum still you know can get wet and hold water but you don't have an organic material there to be a nutrient source right and that can be really hard to get a hold of from um the consumer realm i fell down yeah, that the, for, yeah, I found the stores, that for that yeah that's exactly the case because i've always told people oh if you're redoing your basement you should do that and the problem is you can get it commercially quite readily right because it's using commercial construction all the time uh so right. you have to probably go to a wholesaler your box stores don't carry it Right. And the sad part right. is it's only about twice the price, right? which isn't that much, right? I mean, if you think about right. it, well, basement, it's like a, another thousand dollars to have material that is pretty much impervious to water. What a great idea. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, so you got into this. Um, uh, t t tell us a little bit about your journey. I just like to hear, how, you know, how you went from being, you know, a clinician, you know, you know, working in, you know, general practice, right? That's what you started as a general pra yeah, yeah. practice. And, and yeah. what, what steered you down this path? Because this is a very specific route you're on. This is a very specific route. <laughs> you know, I mean, very specific. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, it's, you know, how things kind of like point you in a direction throughout your life. You know, I've always um, been very curious about uh, kind of the, the mushroom and the fungus realm. I remember, um, in med school, there was a medicinal mushrooms course. And then I found out about Paul Stamets and, you know, all the cool stuff that can be done with like turkey tail and these um, medicinal mushrooms for immune system shifting. And so that was always kind of, you know, back there, it was a cool thing because usually our medications come from plants. And so it was different kingdom, different benefits. So um, that was always curious to me. But as, you know, I got out into practice, I hung my shingle, <clears throat> I moved to Waterbury, Vermont 
and uh, the name uh, is so Ekpo. We've had two floods here, um, and in fact, we have a brick building downtown, and um, they are in a floodplain, and they don't dredge the rivers anymore because of the ecological impact. So the rivers go from being deep to shallow, and because of all the watersheds in mountainous Vermont, people don't realize that flooding is possible up here because you take you know displaced water for miles and miles and dump it into the valleys, mm -hmm. which is where Waterbury is. And so we had a flood in like the 1920s and you can see a flood marker up on the brick building that actually shows like second story where wow. this was. Yeah. Um, and then in 2011, before I moved here, there, there was a, a second flood from Hurricane Irene and it wasn't as substantial as the 1921s, but of course any flood is going to cause great social impact. Like we were a FEMA disaster for a while. So um, when I came into practice in 2013, you know, naturopathic medicine, like we got it when it comes to like fatigue and all these things that can't really be normally treated by Western medicine. And the things I was doing was just not sticking. And I remember having a dialogue with someone and just asking about their environment because environmental medicine was always something I really enjoyed in school. And they had mentioned that their home office was in their basement. And they had mentioned that they there was a flood here a couple of years ago. And that really just started that process going um, and doing some research in mold. And of course, even in naturopathic medical school, like we had a little small section on mold and it was from the allergy perspective. It wasn't even from the toxin perspective. So all of this um, self-study that I did realistically uh, came after school. And so um, that really spurred me to look more into the mycotoxin field. And then as I found out more about the mycotoxin field, I discovered Richie Shoemaker's work and the work of SIRS. And then I went and got SIRS certified. And then I realized I couldn't apply that to every case. And, you know, realistically, that's not how the world works anyway. You know, like there's many things that can cause issues for people. So then I kind of went back to square one, knowing what I now knew about SIRS and um, really found a happy medium in my practice with dealing with the toxic component first and then the inflammatory component. And um, as a result, I started becoming involved with ICI, the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness, and um, started with their board and then became secretary, then vice president and now president. And our goal there is to really um, help educate other physicians about the, the intricacies and complexities of this field and so that they can really uh, work to better help folks. And it's not just clinicians, it's also IEPs too. Like we, yeah, That was my question is like, yeah. what's, what's the constituency of that organization? Yeah, so it's mostly healthcare professionals um, and we have opened it up to people beyond prescriptive authority, but we let people know that there are a time and place for needing a physician who can prescribe and order, but it's still great to have a mental health expert who understands mold exposure and how it can impact depression and anxiety. So we have people from all walks of life there um, and they can all kind of sit through training, but we um, ask them to still uh, only take what is applicable to their, their scope of practice, right? So <clears throat> we also have in that realm IEPs and a lot of people I have have expressed reticence. Well, they say, well, can't Joe Schmo from 
the, the dry out remediation service from down the street, just sign up and say that he knows how to do X, Y, Z. Um, and we actually have it set up where what we require is an IEP with at least 10 years of field practice, who also has a working relationship with a physician who is literate in environmental medicine or mold exposure. Um, and so that way we know that someone already has had um, the boots on the ground and the experience of working with someone who is very sick or at least understands that they might have to go above and beyond or suggest a more thorough remediation plan to help these people get um, back to even keel. So, um, you know, and we, we invite IEPs who, you know, are looking to learn more too. So um, there's kind of a step-by-step -step process where someone can join as kind of like a general member, but before we actually put people on the like find a professional page, we want to make sure that they have those credentials and that experience. So you're, you're doing some sort of vetting, obviously. We are. Going we, we are. We have a whole entire committee and uh, employees dedicated to doing the vetting and it's not easy work. No, well, I mean, it's tough. I mean, it, honestly, you know, I've, I've been a consultant in the industry for 35 years now ish. Uh, maybe it's going on 36. I'm getting too old to remember. And, uh, you know, we still, we got a, we, used, we were involved in remediation too uh, for many, many years in the industry. So I've been out, worn multiple hats and now have, you know, potential clients, you know, ask for competent contractors or somebody, you know, competent consultant in, in another, you know, another region, another state. And I, I do know a lot of people in the industry, but in general, I'm not really comfortable anymore with, you know, the fact referring people. I, I'm just not as a professional because I really don't know what somebody else is going to do in actual practice. Right. You know, that's a tough situation. So what, what, so what's your general thoughts on, on mold remediation? You know, I, and again, I, I, it's a loaded question, right? Cause you're, you're a, uh, a physician, but you know, you have to have at least some opinions. Um, yeah, I mean, I have plenty of opinions, right? I mean, some that you'll actually share on the some that you'll share on the show, as opposed to the ones that you have off camera. Right. Um, I have seen some really severe remediation failures, um, and I have a core company that I use up here. Uh, both for my testing and separately for my remediation. I always keep those two parties separate. Um, however, we have a really great working opportunity, uh, working relationship with one another where I know if I pick up the phone and I call XYZ and I'm like, hey, client incoming, we have these things going on, super sensitive, you know, can you do a thorough workup? Um, so I am very blessed in that um, I have a team that I trust and who trusts me. And together we've seen each other's work, work. You know, we've seen each other's interventions really benefit clients. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's been times where for understandable reasons, people have um, hired outside contractors, maybe because they were quoted cheaper or, and I, I understand, I understand the financial implications firsthand of what happens with this kind of stuff. And um, I have seen remediations fail to the point that um, dust, remediation dust is left after the, the, the negative, um, negative uh, containment is taken down. Like not going in and uh, oh, so inside, usually, the, inside the actual work area was still the left there. Yeah, yeah, and, yep, yep. And and stuff where you know if we only take the the bottom four feet of a wall, then everything else is fine within the wall chamber. You know, 
um, to the point that <laughs> remediation value has surpassed the value of the house standing mm -hmm. as is. Um, I've, and I've so, seen it many times. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's why I always get really excited when someone's like, I live in an apartment. I'm like, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, while you're not as protected from like OSHA standards, there still is in inhabitability that's inferred with renting out to people. And I've seen horrendous things with apartments, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Some yeah. states are a little bit better than others, um, but there's virtually no protection. The only difference is you might be able to break a rental agreement and move out versus you're stuck with a mortgage right. and now with a moldy home. And so um, that's why I tend to be a little bit more thankful when someone can live in an apartment when they come to me so yeah it's, it's a it's it's oh, i can't even tell you you know the hundreds and hundreds of cases that i've been involved with over my career the same thing and uh you know it's funny that you you had mentioned uh people that actually do uh you know dealing with the mental aspects i swear as as an you know an indoor uh environmental uh expert and having to be out there as a professional i've i've spent my fair share doing marriage counseling i swear yeah. uh in, in the field because that's uh, Honestly, and I, I'm sure some people in the audience are going to concur with that. You get caught in situations, highly stressful, highly stressful, especially if you have, you know, children that are affected that are ill. I mean, the stress and the family is just, it's unbelievable. Plus there's financial stress. And if there's, a, you know, litigation going on, which, you know, obviously always gets protracted, right? Always, because that's part of the game in the insurance world and stuff. The deep pockets, you know, bleed the, the shallow pockets and that's how they win. And it's not, it's not a pretty industry. No, it's, it's not. And that's why it always, when I see someone come in with a partner, I either know it's going to be a difficult visit or a really great visit. Um, depending on the support, right? Depending on the support. Yeah. Cause a lot know? of times people and psychologically go, they're crazy. They're crazy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. people forget that your, your genetic detoxes are different and they'll say, well, how come they feel this way? But I don't, it's like, okay, well, let's break this down. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, and similarly, in those situations, you might see a mom and one kid be reactive and a dad and the other kid not. And you're like, okay, well, guess who got the, the good detox genes in the family, you know? So um, yeah, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And then the other thing is like, just because um, someone might, and this goes back to our, our volume knob metaphor that unfortunately we weren't, we weren't live for at the time. Um, but you know, a mom might come in let's just say, and she's really, really sick, but then we find out that she has a history of Epstein-Barr virus and Lyme disease and all these other things. And then the mold is acting as an immune system suppression for these kind of like chronic sticky infections to inflame her system. Whereas dad might have a little bit of a sniffle kind of mm. thing going on, a little bit of allergy, but he's not knocked down and dragged out the way mom is. And I try to remind people like, there can be more than one thorn in the lion's paw. You know, there can be. Yeah, and totally unrelated, one... right? That right. that together they'll have a synergistic effect that's bad. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it, that, well, that's what makes it so tough. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's obviously, um, you know, from the medical community, it's got to be super challenging to try to, you know, to peel back the layers of that onion and find it. But as, as the field consultants, it's tough too, because we don't have the medical expertise and, you know, and we typically don't have all the data and, and there's usually not financial resources for us to do a thorough enough thing. So we're always to some extent compromised on what data we have to make opinions based on. Right. You know, it's, a, it's a tough situation. 
Right. And I think the harder part, one of the hard parts is um, being the first person on site for these things, both medically and in the environment. Um, you know, when people come to me, they've already been through X, Y, Z. We've already gone through different pathways and we check that off, check that off, check that off. And we have a little bit more clarity um, with, with what's happening. Again, my practice is life after mold. People are coming to me because they have health issues that they've connected to mold in their home. And it's just the opportunities for us to work through it are far open. Sure. Um, You've got you people know, that are already open and it may, probably in a lot of cases already on their, their last wits end of how, how they're going to address their situation, right? Right, right. And that, that allows us to, to go slow and move through things. Um, I hate to say it, but when people have been sick for like five, six, 10, 15 years, and I come in, I say, it's going to take a while to get better. You know, you might not see improvement for like three to six months with some of these interventions. And sometimes full recovery might take a year, might take two, might take three. There might be some things we can do, some things we can't. And people are like, I've been sick for long enough. Like, sure. What's another couple of months? It's the um, the folks who are sick recently. Um, that, they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear six months to diagnose their problem. Right, but then yeah. at the same time, those people can sometimes recover pretty quick because they haven't had such long exposure. So it's a hard dance for the so, kind of so, newer cases. So, so you do see there's there's the there's a, an effect of how long somebody's had the issue. It, it, that's that's a timeline is part of the factor. You know, I, I think there, there is. Um, so when I think about the body system, I think of like, um, like a toxin, like bucket or like a sink or something where we have the inflow of what goes into body. And then we have an outflow here of how the cup gets drained, how the sink gets drained. And so, um, for certain people, um, you know, their cup might always have this space where they're always half full their body's always kind of not at wit's end when it comes mm -hmm. to toxins. Um, they, they have head but, basically. Right, yeah. they have head, exactly. But the interesting part about mycotoxins is they can go in and they can plug up that exit hole. They actually interfere with their own detox, detox of other mycotoxins and uh, hormones and all these issues. And so um, what what will end up happening is their, their cup will get uh, fuller over time and then they have less headroom and then kind of every insult they bump into can cause a spillover and cause these issues. So the longer you're in that space, potentially the fuller your cup is. So I do see a bit of a correlation with, with severity, with exposure length. That's yeah. So that's, that's another challenge. Cause I mean, and you probably see, I'm sure in, in your time in practice, you've seen all of the above, right? You mean, you've, you've had people that are, you know, just recently experienced uh, maybe a uh, mold-related issue in their in their living quarters or their workspace, and people that have been chronically dealing with this for decades, right? You get all right. of the above. All of the above. All the above sure. so, so we're gonna uh, just to let the audience know we'll we'll start uh, letting you uh, put questions in there. So. Um, what we'd like you to do, though, is uh, do a hand raise. So uh, Susan, our moderator, uh, Susan Valenti is in the background. She's the editor of Healthy Indoors magazine, and she's on your chat line. Um, you can uh, raise your hand or ask the question there, and she'll be able to uh, help you out with that. Susan, you have a question, I take it. I'm going to let you, you jump know, in. Um, you know, actually, Lauren, um, actually, Sue Ann Dunford actually wanted to know earlier, um, um, do you take um, consultations or clients outside of Vermont? 
We do, but um, in those particular instances, we're doing more of an educational wellness consult where we're talking kind of globally about your case and you maintain a local relationship with your physician who is aware of us working together. And then everything that we dialogue with you, you then have to run through them and they make the adjustments and final say on the care. So yes, I do. Um, but in those cases, I can't write you prescriptions for medications and I specifically cannot order those labs, nor can I specifically diagnose you. It's kind of just almost like health coaching in that, in that way. Exactly. You know, and then I had another, you know, I had a, I had one other question that you like had brought up, um, you know, and I, cause I find this fascinating that you actually have, you know, almost like a, you know, like an IEP team for consulting and for remediation yourself, you know, and I imagine that part of that is because you personally have um, dealt with some of these issues, but as a doctor, that's also a very interesting um, thing, you know, and my question is like, you know, could that be the answer to a lot of these medical issues that like, you know, that, you know, doctors do have kind of like a, you know, um, you know, like an IEP team that they can consult with, that they can, you know, that they can refer out to. Um, you know, a lot of people in, in our profession have always talked about how, you know, there is no like, you know, one prescription that, you know, like a consultant can write, you know, but like, but of course, medical doctors can write plenty of, you know, of prescriptions, but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm curious, like how well, um, you know, the medical community and, you know, and like the, and like, and I guess like an IEP could work together, you know, to kind of solve these problems quicker. Right. Um, one of the things I tell my clients is if someone tells you that you can stay in mold and get better, you need to run for the hills. They're going to waste your time. They're going to waste your money. Um, it is necessary for the body, remember the cup metaphor, to get out of exposure long enough or get into a different type um, of exposure. There's no such thing as perfection. There's only better or different. Um, to have enough time to get enough headspace, um, as Bob puts it, to to be able to recover. Um, and so there are physicians out there who say, you know, you can stay stay in your home and they put you on, you know, uh, expensive IVs, you know, and all these different things that just chew through people's resources when in actuality, I'd rather have people put that money towards getting the home remediated, improved, um, and then recovery. Because um, ultimately, when you remediate a home and you do some of those correcting, you're not just removing mold. Um, you know, they're going to go in there with air scrubbers. They're going to be uh, maybe cleaning out some of the ambient other stuff in the air that you didn't realize was there the whole entire time. So um, there are unforeseen benefits with remediation. And so for me, um, remediation is really important and it really needs to be done right. Um, and you need to really be able to find a um, remediation team that you trust. So if any physicians are listening, like don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call other IEPs in your area. You know, you can start with digging around just to start on um, the ACAC to try to find just a list of names um, and then but that go just, through there. Honestly, that's voluntary certifications, you know, <laughs> and, and, the, and that does not, you know, that does not ensure, 
common sense and certainly not integrity. <laughs> it, 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 it all it shows is that you can pass a multiple choice test. And the same is true for New York State, you know, and other states with their licensing programs. There's no there's no actual, uh, you know, demonstrative practice in the field that you have to, you know, pass some sort of a practical exam. And I agree. And so when people are using the ACAC, I ask them to use it as a Rolodex. So if you're a physician pulling up an ACAC list and then calling and seeing if you could get an IEP on the phone, who cares enough to talk to you for a few minutes about, um, you know, your cases or create a meeting for a little bit, because an IEP will also understand, you know, I think what makes a good IEP is them understanding a the impacts of health and b also being a smart business person saying well I know if I work with this physician I'm more than likely to get like references and to work with people and expand my business and usually that shows for me at least someone who cares mm -hmm. um if you can't get an IEP on the phone and they're not going to answer questions like you know, they're probably not someone you want to right. run parallel with, but I know I can pick up my IEP, my phone right now and, <laughs> and call my IEP and call my remediator and, and check in with them. And I think that's where a lot of the rubber meets the road. Um, and I have been educated very thoroughly from the two of them. And they have also been, and this is the key, open and receptive to hearing, you know, some of the things that I have to say in the beginning, they were like, wait, you need me to do what for this person? How is that different from the current remediation that we do? What does that look like? And then, you know, there's a remediation failure and they see the health issue mm -hmm. and they go, oh, okay, we're going to come back in. We're going to tidy that up. We're going to do the third party testing again. And, you know, it's all clear. So mm -hmm. the, it's just the relationship. I really feel like the relationship with the IEP sure. is really the cornerstone because after that, it, it's, you guys are team working it and you're figuring it out for the client. Um, but, versus... but you don't often, you know, you're not often able like as the client to have that environment, because again, if it's a, if it's an insurance claim, there might be some, you know, some, they may not, you know, the client may not have as much control as they should have, you know, or, I mean, <laughs> legally they're supposed to, but I mean, you know how that goes, right? They get a contractor forced down their throat. Things get done yep. a certain way, you know, uh, oh, the water only went up 12 inches. So we're going to come out, cut out 16 inches of drywall. You know, that's a, it's that kind of nonsense. Whereas, and I'm going to get blowback for even saying that just now, but I'm a firm believer in, in an environment, you know, it's cheaper to take out sheetrock than it is to try to salvage sheetrock. I don't understand that. I can't, you know, and I can't say what's in the interstitial space unless I tear it out, but Anyway, uh, I'm going to invite everybody in our virtual studio audience to kick your cameras on now. Um, we're, we're, we're in Q&A mode. You know, you can show your faces. Uh, stay muted, though. Raise your hand to ask the question, and then we'll bring you in and uh, let you ask uh, questions of uh, Dr. Tess here. Uh, I don't see any questions. Of, oh, there, Terry Sofer's in. There he is. He's not, he's not bashful to turn his cameras on. I know many people are just, just they're not comfortable turning their cameras on, but you should do it. There we go. Um Susan had a, had posted a thing earlier, and I I know you kind of cursory covered this, but th she posted this to me earlier on uh, before the show started. Um, the term research to practice is something that's we we did a show last week on that, talking about academia dealing with field practitioners, whether it be the IEPs or contractors, and not just for mold, you know, just in general indoor environmental. I, do do you see that there's a there's a disconnect between the medical community and field practitioners? I mean, it seems like you're kind of describing that, right? You have a, you have a good working relationship, but is that normally the case? No, it's not normally the case. It's not normally the case at all. Um, that good working connection is like, if any IEPs are listening, like 
Google mold literate physician or go on ICI.org and just look at the practitioner map and see if there's a practitioner near you that you can dialogue with. Because for as many of folks that are out there, there's just as many physicians who don't have a reliable team. Um, and sometimes they are too busy or too scared to reach out or, you know, for all these different reasons. So um, I don't, I think IEPs don't realize what a gift they could, they could bestow themselves into someone's lap um, because we, we don't work unless we have a team that works. My treatment is not successful unless someone's in a healthy home. So it makes total sense, right? Because I mean, especially if, if their illness or part of their illness is being driven by environmental factors, you're not going to medicate your way around that. No. And yeah, there's just, it makes total sense. Um, here's a question for you. This is, this is the next loaded question in, in the show. Uh, is mold testing necessary? You know, and if it is, you know, uh, who should, who should be doing it? Because there's, you know, and, and what, what kind of criteria should we be using for mold testing? I, I know you have some opinions on that one. Uh, from what realm? Uh, human or environmental? Oh boy, no, you uh, uh, environmental actually. Environmental. It's okay. not, not, not yes, because humans are different. I well, I'm actually well, even both. the human you testing know, is is not perfect. No, human no, you know, let, let, let's address both of those let's actually. Do this. I was thinking from environmental, but you know, you, you raised an interesting thing because there's I've heard all different types of medical uh, medical testing being done on clients yeah. like A to Z, and I, they don't necessarily make sense to me, but I'm not a practitioner. Right. So let's say um, if someone, if this is just an example, if someone's peeing blood, they come into you, they're peeing blood, you're going to pull every possible lab that's going to be related to peeing blood. You're going to pull a comprehensive metabolic panel. You're going to do a urine dipstick. You're going to do all these things. Um, when you're dealing with mold, it's the same idea, but it's a little bit more complicated in the human body in that you need to understand the clinical question that the test is answering. There's so many physicians that use that whole um, blood in the pee metaphor where they go, okay, everything kidney related, I'm gonna draw on a test and I'm gonna catch a wide net and figure out what's going on. If you toss a really wide net and mold, because of all the immune system disturbance it caused, because it can bioaccumulate in tissues, the mold toxins specifically is what I'm talking about, not mold in general. Um, you're, you can get all these different funky labs and those labs will be different depending on if you're using a liquid chromatography test and ELISA, the type of methodology of the labs. So what I tell people when they're training to really teach, uh, to, to do this work is, Shooting from the hip with mold illness is only going to open up chaos in the situation. What you need to do instead is find out the clinical answer that you want and work back and use the test that's going to best answer that. And so that becomes being really, um, you really need to get familiar with the testing because you're in mycotoxin test. There's mycotoxins in our food. You know, those tend to be usually aflatoxin and ochratoxin, but those there's a lot of it, though, potentially, right? If you eat nuts and things like that, you're, you're going to be exposed to that. Right, exactly. But um, we also know from the animal literature that um, inhalation is the highest bioavailable route when it comes to um, even the trichothecene uh, group of mycotoxins. So, um, you know, when you start to know the intricacies of a lab, I can usually look at a urine mycotoxin test, and if there's a spike, meaning more is leaving the body, 
you know, if it's a gross spike up in the like 20s or, you know, tenfold, I can usually ask someone to look back into their environment and find something. Um, and if they haven't changed their diet and there hasn't been any big shifts and differences, that huge dramatic increase in that mycotoxin is less likely to come from the food variable. So what I'm getting into here is knowing the test, knowing the limitations of the test, knowing the benefits of the test, and also having enough clinical experience with the test and saying, you know, I've seen this pattern before and this is what it looks like. And so in my uh, work with clients, the ELISA version of the urine mycotoxin test is the tool that I find the most helpful. Well, other people find better ways to use some of the other tools for sure, you know, but this is the thing that works for me and it tends to correlate with clients. And so with that being said, to pan back out, a lot of our labs are faulty because they don't tell you everything that you want and need to know. And if you're confused about the question you're answering, you're not going to get a clear answer, which is very similar with environmental testing. I think a lot of mold doctors get super pumped about like an ERMI, and ERMI must be less than two. And that's something that uh, Shoemaker um, in the SERS camp in the 90s put, put that score together. And we know the limitations of ERMI. It started off as kind of an EPA research tool. And then yeah, somehow it was, never, it, it was never meant to go to the field to be used in general application. Right. Ever. Right, right. And, um, you know, the, the hard part is they slap one number on variables that can just be all over the place because of how that number is crunched. And so the benefit that I really find in these things is um, working with uh, MSQPCR. So using that kind of um, DNA testing, um, is it the, the M-trap is what they call it for the MSQPCR? Um, using that instead of the ERMI, because at least then I can say, oh, that's a really problematic species versus, oh, that's, that species maybe not as potent of a mycotoxin producer. So um, I find the speciation component to be the most, the most helpful. Um, I do find it important to at least get some type of baseline or testing for a person and a home because if you don't do that baseline testing, you don't know when to stop. You know, if you don't do the baseline testing on a home and base and testing after remediation, I don't know if the home is now something that we can cross off our list and say, okay, that brain fog, let's go work up your history of Lyme disease uh, versus the the mold stuff that you have just been working on. But so that, ra that raises the question of what's your baseline testing, right? Because there's, there's so many different variables there, you right. know, I mean, the, the classic in this industry on a, it's a double edged sword, right? Sport, when the when the cassette spore trap was invented in the mid 90s, when we didn't have to no more longer lithium grease slides and put them in allergenkos or Burkhart's, uh, you know, it was it was a great thing. It was a perfect day, right? You could easily handle handled spore trap and everybody started doing spore traps. The mm -hmm. problem is, right, there's some limitations there with what you can find with a spore trap. Right. I'm not, not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's. Mm -hmm. It's limited. Right, right. So, and so, so what, what do you prescribe? What do you what would you prescribe for, you know, baseline testing? I mean, and again, I know that's not your expertise necessarily, but you're right. involved in it. Right. Um, baseline testing. See, that's <laughs> that's the hard part. Um, 
you know, again, I'm not an IEP and I really bow to the IEPs out Yeah, there and I probably wasn't that. fair to ask you, you know? that question um, either. You know? what, what I hope for, at least, is someone who's not going to come in and just do a visual and say, I don't see anything, so there's not a problem. So um, what I expect, at least from the minimum for people is, you know, the hygrometer, uh, infrared, uh, maybe even a particle counter. Um, someone who's actually willing to do in in wall sample because I do find that that information can be um, valuable. I've had a couple of cases where it has been the thing um, that has been really important. And you know, someone who can look and say, "Well, that pipe is a drain pipe. It's likely to carry." Uh, cold water through that wall. Um, let's look and see if there's like a temperature drop. And if there's a temperature drop, there might be condensation and maybe we should sample there. So I, I, I leave a lot of the testing up to my IEP because I know that they have a concept of building science, I guess, and where things can hide and be problematic. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll do an I, they'll do an ERMI if need be. And again, it's more for the MSQ PCR technology there. But you know, there's also the limitations of if you don't catch it, you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's the hard part. So um, it's really hard to get a baseline. One of the things that I've kind of titrated that down to or diluted it down to is there's no such thing as perfect. Better is what we're looking for. Um, so sometimes for someone that might mean having moving away from a house that has a high count of stacky, which, you know, you're not going to find very well in the air test, but they go into a home that maybe has a little bit more or obsidium or something like that, but the rest of the numbers look good. So, um, I, I wish I knew more about building science. Um, I wish I knew more about the ins and outs of testing. I'm always willing to learn more. Um, and so that's why I feel really confident in my team and i know i'm very lucky on that front to have people that i can defer to i mean i would say that you know just just in our brief conversation here you know more than most uh medical doctors that i've spoken with on the topic so i'm pretty i'm pretty impressed with your you know understanding of the environmental uh testing side of things uh are are there any is there any good mold information uh available on social media or you know on the internet Come on. Um, oh, I guess, you know, I guess, I mean, we all see it. I mean, there, there's, there's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I have to say that I, I, I went on the uh, Healthy Indoors uh, Instagram last night and I was very pleased by the quality of memes that were on there. So whoever's doing your memes for you guys, I got to chuckle out of some of them. Oh boy. Sure. Yeah. I, I, they're going to love that. Yeah. Cause they got their finger on the pulse for sure. with some of the memes that have been kicking around. So I, I definitely we have a new team us. and it's, it's yeah. a very young team. We'll just leave it yeah, at that. No, it's, exactly. No, it's, but they're it's actually the a teenage team running Instagram. It, it, yeah, it's actually it's, teenage. <laughs> honest yeah. to God. It's like, you yeah. know, it, it's, we're old codgers doing everything else with the organization, but our Instagram team is uh, very yeah. young. <laughs> well, they they got it. I'm, I was very excited about that lesson. I was like, "That's different." I appreciate that. That is that is not what other people are doing for uh, social media, and that's exciting. Um, and so that's that's the hard thing is there are you've heard the intricacy of our conversation so far, and there are a lot of people who try to take what we just said and go and put it into one tiny little statement, and that doesn't cover it. And brevity is cool. 
brevity is great, but brevity can also be a disservice. And so um, you see in a lot of the dialogue where people are saying, you know, mold illnesses, SIRS, it's like, well, that's, that's one facet, you know, or, um, you know, you have to burn your house down because of the mold. And it's like, no, no, you know, like you might have a mold issue up in the top corner of your roof deck, but potentially the clothes in your children's closet that has good ventilation and is far away from that area might actually be okay. And so there can be a huge benefit to the social media groups. I have had clients who have come in and have actually gotten decent, decent information there you know they've they've started their process be, thanks to those groups but then you also see groups where it's like you'll never get better and you, you can't live in any house and you got to move to the desert and live yeah. in a tent and for some people that has been their experience and that's their truth but that is not the truth for everyone so um social media it you know just it has its pros and its cons right. um in this process What's I think it's important, I mean, always to try to be the voice of reason, whatever aspect, whatever role you play in the, the group of people addressing it, you know, whether you're on the consulting side, whether you're on the, the actual contractor side, whether you're on the medical side, it, it's like being, being the voice of reason and, and trying to, like, like, I think you hit the nail on the head that there's nothing, you're not going to reach perfection. It doesn't happen. There's not, there's not one single perfect environment you know, that any of us are in. So the idea is to improve the environment incrementally and try to get it to a point where it's a space where somebody can be okay there. Mm -hmm. So, so this is, by the way, I wish I had another hour with you right now, because this, this is, <laughs> I'm uh, this has been to fantastic. Come back on. I've actually had a really, really enjoyable time. So well, let the, me know. Well, well there you go. You know, maybe, maybe we'll even bring you on. We, we have a monthly uh, nighttime show called Health, Healthy Indoors After Hours, which is 90 <laughs> minutes. And it's a different format because we actually consume alcohol and everything else there. Uh, so it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a totally different format. If you think this wild. is loose, if you take this and loosen it up like tenfold, uh, yeah, this particular it. show. So, uh, and it's an evening broadcast. So anyway, um, final thoughts or anything, anything you'd like to close out on just, a, you know, that burning point we didn't cover. We covered a lot, but it doesn't seem like yeah. we covered everything we should. Um, or just, just a closing wrap up, you know, something, uh, you know, I, you know, and maybe this is me with uh, being sentimental and, you know, a big part of my family is in the mental health field. Um, and so, but maybe that's part of it, but when you start dealing with mold, you are um, essentially destroying and navigating the foundation of healthy psychology. So there's this concept of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the bottom is like um, home, food, security, and then there's like social. And then as you go up the pyramid, you get to deal more with the complexities of the human experience. So like there's the spiritual aspect and all these different things and, you know, existential, able to navigate existential things and all this stuff. But when you're dealing with mold, you're going into the base of the pyramid and you're just like knocking it out. You know, that is the core and that is the foundation for people. And um, people suffer trauma as a result of this, not just as a result of having your home taken out from under you, but also of being chronically sick. And so what I remind people is, Sometimes there has to be a rewiring of the nervous system. Your body, after going through recovery, now needs to be told that it is okay and it is safe. So that way your physiology can actually go back to its normal state. There's a whole field of it, psychoneuroimmunology. And so what I tell people is 
if you didn't get sick overnight, most of us didn't get sick overnight, you're not going to get better overnight. But that also means that at this moment in time, you do not need to rush to the outcome. The best thing that you can do is move in slow and measured and reassured paces. And if you don't have the community and team to help you through that, you need to find that community and team, first of all. Um, because security, psychosocial and mental emotional security is what is going to get you through this whole entire turmoil. So, um, you know, instead of being like, oh, mold's dangerous, it's just dig in. Sometimes your power is going to come from yourself. Sometimes you're going to be lucky and have a supportive self or a mom or a cousin or a sister or a friend. But wherever you can find that support, really um, cherish it, hold on to it strengthen it and know that that is going to be the thing that's going to help you navigate this difficult stuff. Wow. That, that was actually, uh, moving. <laughs> Fantastic. It really was. Um, yeah, we're at that time, unfortunately. Um, this, this is every week. I always feel this, this little me mental angst of ending the show. So I always feel like there's more to need to be covered, but in this case in particular, um, I would do three hours with you, and a heartbeat on a show here because I, I think it's just been just a breath of fresh air and just some great information. So we definitely would like to have you back. I love um, that. I, what we'll definitely do here is, you know, it's quick plug for, for what we're doing with the site and what we do with healthy indoors. So, uh, so our primary site for our organization, our digital media organization is healthyindoors.com. Um, that's really where the repository of all of our back issues of the magazine, eight years of the magazine uh, reside there, um, our, as well as our video shows and the audio podcast of the shows, a lot of other resources you can get to too. Uh, in particular is our online community though, which we opened officially to the general public yesterday. And this is, Lauren, this will be new for you too. Um, yeah. So this is, a, this is a platform that's strictly dedicated to indoor environments. Um, it's uh, think of it as social media and a networking and, and, and we can live stream to it. There can be events there. There can be training. It's pretty much, it is a central hub for indoor environmental topics of which mold is one. Uh, what's great is it's also uh, available free worldwide. Uh, we have a premium level that uh, there is a pay for that to, to actually get to some premium content and some uh, stuff that's not readily accessible. But most of the platform is free to everyone. So we really think you should take advantage of that. You can get to it by going to healthyindoors.com and clicking on the community tab in the upper menu, and that will get you to, to be able to sign up to become part of it. We do have a little bit of a cohorting process because we, unlike Facebook or LinkedIn, you don't just get to sign up and get thrown into, you know, to the wolves. Uh, we actually want to bring you through and, uh, and actually meet you and help pair you up because it's not, it's really not just a place to post discussions, although that's great, but we'd like you to be able to actually engage with other people and network with people of like interests or people th that you find interesting. So anyway, that's really exciting. I haven't seen anyone do that, anything like that yet. So that's, that's wonderful. And that's going to be a huge service. Thank that's you for that. and that's really yeah that's what you know i will tell you susan and i have been working on this for a long time you know mm -hmm. and it's like it, it seems like it seems longer than it was but it it's just been it's been a lot to put this beast together but honestly we're really excited um you know i sound like the proud proud father here now um having it out there but it's it, it's new uh, there's not many people there but we anticipate it's going to grow exponentially very quickly so we're really excited about it so Dr. Lauren Tessier, I, I, just fantastic. So life after mold. Um, I mean, do you take clients from outside? You know, do you, people travel to you from afar? 
yeah. I'm assuming, right? Because you're a specialist. It seems like you you are offering some assistance that maybe people can't get locally. And I, I do have uh, people travel from all around the country and I understand that sometimes um, that's not possible for people. So in those situations, uh, going to ICI.org, that's I-S-E-A-I, not the letter C, but like the ocean, ICI, um, and go to the find help page. You know, it's, it's not just me out there that exists. And to follow up on that really quick, I'm not gonna be everyone's cup of tea. Dr. Susie over there is not going to be everyone's cup of tea, you know, um, and so I just invite people to, you know, search around, find someone who resonates with you, because that's going to be another part of treatment, you know, you're going to want to be motivated to interact with someone that you actually like, and not someone that you dislike, so shop around for sure, guys. And, yeah, I, um, I guess that's really, that that's super important, right, that you actually find a physician, just like a consultant, right, you have to shop for your consultant, too. For sure. I'm going to post that up in the, uh, let me just get the, E-A-I, right? I, you think I would have this in the lower thirds ready to go already, but no, uh, I do not. You no know, problem. Li live television. So <laughs> that's in the chat. It, yeah, but that doesn't help anybody that's watching it. Um, True. But uh, there, there you go. I-S-E-A-I dot org. O-R-G, not O-G-R. Oh, my God. I put an ogre. It's not ogre. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like your camera moving around. So that this is my this is my rebuttal to your camera. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, it's classic. Uh, there we go. There we go. Look at that. And, oh, no, I got to take it down and put it back up here. Oh, okay. And people can find me on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and even Pinterest. I'm kind of working on. We'll see. Um, and the handles all there are life after mold. And then if you swing by my website, there is a mold prevention 101, which is going to be super base uh, with regards to some of the information. But it's like, do you have a sweating pipe? You might want to address that. Do you need French drains? Is your great, you know, so stuff that gives people at least a report card to go around their house and say, oh, maybe I should call someone in to address that. Or, you know, um, so it's the... Uh, mold prevention 101 and when you sign up for our, our email list um, you'll get it sent to you and I really only send out probably like five emails a year I'm, well, you I'm know, bad with marketing on that so one of the things you could do is you could actually come over and put a space over on the community but That's true. we'll talk about that we will absolutely. I'm going to be hawking that to everybody now till the end of eternity so yeah. that's the way it is so uh, I guess that's where we're at we're, we're over time as always and uh, you know it, that such is life. 60 minutes is just too too fleeting a time period to actually talk about what we need to talk about. But anyway, thanks again so very much, uh, Lauren, for joining us today. Um, we'll be back next week, uh, next Thursday, same time, same bat channel, uh, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern for the Healthy Indoors live show. Uh, until that time, I'm your host, Bob Krell. Uh, stay healthy uh, and stay happy. We'll see you soon. Thank you.